because it's such a horrible word, racism, that people just turn away from it straight away. They go, I'm not racist, or I'm not sexist, I'm not homophobic, but in many respects, we are all one of those things to a certain degree. John, what is the uncomfortable truth about racism? <laughs> there isn't one uncomfortable truth, but I think the main thing is that we all have to understand, and when I say racism is about bias generally, so it could be sexism, homophobia, um, not just from a gender point, but religious bias, is the fact that we are all biased, be it race, sex, religion, to a certain extent. So it's not binary. It's not either we are or we aren't. Um, because we are all to a certain extent because of the way we have been conditioned to think. Not just from also politically. So I don't know why it is, uh, because it's such a horrible word, racism, that people just turn away from it straight away. They go, I'm not racist. Or I'm not sexist, I'm not homophobic. But in many respects, we are all one of those things to a certain degree. And that's the uncomfortable truth, because we, we want to think that if you're racist, you have to be a member of the Ku Klux Klan, or you have to go and beat up Pakistanis. And if, as long as we don't do that, we convince ourselves that we're not racially biased. And why did you decide to write a book on it so recently, um, after all this time? Well, I started the book about 10 years ago. <laughs> so I didn't, I didn't decide to do it recently, I decided about 10 years ago. And because I'm doing it myself, it's not being ghostwritten. Um, if it was ghostwritten, I could have done it in a year. But because I'm actually doing it myself, that's why it took such a long time because I'm not a journalist, I'm not a writer. So it took a long time to put together. Mm. And um, speaking out on this subject so publicly, how does that affect your life? It doesn't necessarily affect my life. It, it affects people's perceptions of me. Because unfortunately, a lot of people are very binary in the situation. Because, for example, when I defended Liam Neeson, I'm talking about racism, and here I am defending Liam Neeson. So, you know, a lot of black people will say, oh, you're a racist apologist. And then, of course, depending on what I also say about systemic bias within this country, a lot of white people are saying you're just playing the race card and saying everything is racist. So people, some people say you're saying everything is racist. Some people are saying you're saying nothing is racist. So, but the book really is just about how I, how I see things, and it's a very nuanced conversation. Bias, be it gender, race, um, religion, and unfortunately, with all the clickbait and the sound bites that are around, they think we can discuss it um, or solve it just by taking a knee. So um, I met you a few years ago, same building, um, when I interviewed you the first time, and we talked more about football then, and it struck me. I was very taken aback how balanced and neutral and how you are able to observe a situation without getting too emotionally extreme. Mm. Is this the message you're trying to get out with racism, that um, there are, there's a balanced perspective and we all need to look inside as well as outside? Is that the Absolutely. message? Absolutely, because of course, we, pardon the pun, we like to think it's just a black and white situation. It isn't. Because if you look at the disenfranchisement and the exploitation of black people in, in black countries, um, in Africa and the Caribbean, whereby they are black countries, but they're being exploited, is that racism? Because black people are discriminating against other black people? That's why you have to look at the, the nuances around class, around privilege, around elitism, as well as race. Uh, but of course, we're then trying to just make it a solely black and white issue, which it isn't. Because of course, if we go back to 400 years ago when capitalism started, you will see that white working class people and white working class people are still being discriminated against today. And in many respects, the philosophy and the theory behind capitalism is exactly the same um, for, the, for, the, for the, um, the minority to have more, the majority has to have less. And that majority may be female, may be black, may be gay, may be travelers, you know, they may be Muslims. So there is discrimination and until, that's why the intersectionality behind discrimination is very important for us to understand. But what is happening is that we're being the whole divide and conquer situation. Whenever you talk about race, they'll say, well, what about us? And then what about women? And what about that? So rather than everybody coming together, 
everybody starts to argue with each other as to which is more important. You said about um, defending Liam Neeson. Did you get quite a lot of criticism for that? Oh yeah, absolutely. But once again, you see, because I, I know um, about conditioning. Now, you take race out of the situation and just look at bias. And from Liam Neeson's perspective, well, if you were brought up in Northern Ireland in the 70s and you are a Catholic, if a Protestant policeman kills a Catholic, your duty is not terrible. It's not your duty, you're not, but this is what you've been conditioned to think. It's not to kill or to, to attack that Protestant, police, that, 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 that Protestant policeman. It's any Protestant. So when Liam Neeson said what he said, and people said, well, why couldn't it have just been the black person who raped his cousin? Why does it have to be any black person? Because they haven't been brought up in the way he, he, he has, in that then that group becomes the enemy. So therefore, like the Hutu and the Tutsis. So, so once you understand that, you understand the way people have been conditioned to think. And why it doesn't make sense to us, if we understand how conditioning works, because we're all conditioned in different ways, we just have to thank the Lord that we're not in an environment to have to make those decisions. We're brought up in a very nice environment whereby we don't have to make decisions as to you know, who we're going to attack, who we're going to kill, who we're going to think negatively towards. We do, from a racial point of view, um, and from an implicit racial point of view, because you're not attacking black people, but you're crossing the road if there are four black guys coming towards us. <clears throat> um, so I, I, I understood where Liam Neeson came from. Um, and secondly, secondly, and most importantly, from Liam Neeson's perspective, if you listen to what he said, he said, and it was, a, it was an interview about, um, the interview was, has revenge played a negative part in his life? That was the interview was. So even from the, from the, the, the title, if you like, of the interview, has racist, has, has vengeance, revenge, played a negative part in your life? And he says, yes, it's played a very negative part in my life because for one week, when this happened, for one week, this is how I felt. After that week, I never had those thoughts. I got, I was, I was introspective. I went to the priest. I got help. I was ashamed. I was embarrassed. And I never felt that again. I think you'd be commended for that. Rather than people going, oh, for one week, he said he wanted to kill a black person. So, um, but of course, as I say, when you just have snippets taken from the situations rather than looking at the full context, people can come up with, with, with the wrong idea. Mm. And we were talking before cameras went on about um, Harry and Meghan. And Meghan, I don't know if she intimated or said it more directly that she experienced racism in the royal family. What's, what's your thoughts on that? Well, I think she intimated and I think the whole thing is about the, 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 the racism from the press more than the royal family. Because, of course, that's the way it has been spun. But I think Harry has said, and he has tried to say, because, of course, if you read the book, or if you look into the context of what she's actually saying, I think the press has been the real issue. The way it's been spun is the royal family. Because, take, for example, the, depending on how you want to read into the situation about the color of the baby. Now, if one parent is black and one parent is white, a lot of people will say, I wonder what color baby, the baby's going to be, how dark it's going to be. Is that racist? Because of course, if one black parent, one white parent, you can say maybe it's gonna have blonde hair, blue eyes. Is it gonna be white? Is it gonna be darker? So depending on how that question was actually asked, then determines as to whether we think it's racist or not. So of course, depends on, on, on your perception of the conversation that went on. Because I would think that that is a very normal question, you know, de depending on how it's asked. Mm. Now, if you just say, for example, oh, I wonder, I wonder if he's gonna have a, a, a darker skin, rather than, I wonder if he's gonna have dark skin. Depends. So, so therefore, a lot of the things I think have been taken out of context, and I suppose that they've had to do that because they have to sensationalize things to make money. Mm. Now, unfortunately, what has now happened is that this has become a situation whereby if you're black, you have to like Megan. 
Forget about whether you like her as a person or feel that because I, 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 I don't know her at all, but I can't remember her complaining about racism too much in her career. Um, and I think her career has gone okay. I think she's done really well for herself. And of course, now all of a sudden, things aren't going well. And I'm not saying she's played a race card at all. However, how invested has she been in that situation until she got into the royal family? Um, but if you say that, then you're a racist. Why can't you criticize? Tell you what I long for. I long for the day where a black man and a white man can have a fight without it being a racist incident. Should we try it? <laughs> why, can't I why can't a white man fight me and it not being a racist incident because he yeah. doesn't like me? You know, so unfortunately, if there's any black and white situation, because I know a lot of black people who, who don't identify with Megan because, you know, Megan is a, a superstar Hollywood actress who's a, a, a millionaire. Mm. You know, when you're black and you're living in the cities, um, I don't think that you necessarily have anything in common with Meghan Markle. But, you know, as I said, um, I empathize with her 100% because I think the way the press has treated her has been racially biased. I can't speak to what the royal family has done because I don't think that Harry has meant it in that way. Um, judging by what I've heard him say, and in fact, he's actually come out and said he doesn't think the royal family is racist, but the way it's been reported by the media, because the media are the ones who are the ones who are, in my opinion, um, have, are the ones who have been very unfair to her from a racial perspective. Mm. I think it was Morgan Freeman. He was asked about um, how do we deal with the issues of race, and he said, stop talking about race. What do you think yeah. about that? Well, stop talking about race isn't going to stop knife crime in the area whereby disproportionately affects black people. Stop talking about it. Is that going to stop? Are black people going to be getting better opportunities? Economically, socially, educationally, because we stop talking about it? We have to talk about it in the right way. We have to stop just pointing fingers because, as I said, it's not a black and white situation. You have to look at the nuances around class, around privilege, around capitalism, lots of other, other dynamics to really come to a solution. So stopping talking about it is not the answer, but talking about it in the right way and coming up with solutions um, based on the intersectionality around bias, be it gender, race, sexuality, religious, north and south. Mm -hmm. I, I got off the train um, at Houston last, about three weeks ago, and as I'm walking to King's Cross, I was going to King's Cross, and there was a building site, there's a lot of building work going on there, and there was a conversation between a worker and the foreman. I just heard them because I'm walking by. They didn't see me. I didn't even see them. I could just hear them. And obviously the, the worker had done something wrong. And the, the, the foreman actually said to him, well, that was a very northern attitude to have. Now I knew instantly it wasn't a compliment. So what is the perception of northerners that southerners had that they are inferior? So racism, sexism, homophobia is completely understandable because of the way we've been conditioned to think. And that is what we have to tackle. Not the individual incidents of a banana coming on the football field. But that is what we're doing. We're looking at individual incidents of inconsequential people who have no influence or control over systemic racism, systemic bias, sexism. The man who raped somebody, he's, he's not the reason why women are, that one person isn't. It's the fact that all men, all men throughout history, not all men are rapists, not all men are rapists, but the male population generally has disenfranchised and, and abused women generally which is, the, which is the, what we have to tackle, not the individuals. And so how do, we do a, how do we go about creating what is sounding to me like context? It sounds like context is everything. And then maybe once we can get context, how do we passionately disagree without it being about race and all the other um, biases you talked about? Well, once we understand it, we don't have to passionately disagree. Maybe we will agree. 
But the most important thing is for us to look at ourselves. Because just as an example, and this is just an example, but it, it, it pertains to most industries, when a female referee walks on the field, we know what 99% of men think, that a men would be better. 99% of men do not say a thing, say anything. Maybe 2% say something. And we're pointing the finger at the 2% and they say, he's the problem. He's not the problem. The other 96 are the problem. Because what we've done is that we were not given a chance, we won't give her an opportunity, but we won't say anything. And then we are convincing society that we accept her as a referee, but we don't. And until we see that and we understand that we have to look at ourselves and wonder why we don't see her because of the way we've been conditioned to think nothing will change. What we're doing now in this day and age, you are teaching people how not to get caught in terms of the language they use. And unfortunately, if you're a particular age, they're the ones who are getting caught because it becomes natural for you to say something when you're over 40, over 50. And all we're doing is teaching people how to keep their mouth shut, but nothing will change, but then no one will get caught in showing their true biases. Can you understand why people don't dare say anything with literally the virtue signaling and the attacks on anything that you say in the media right now? Absolutely, absolutely. And you know, because even when I talk about, um, and in fact, if you look at a lot of the people who are our biggest champions of it, and if you just want to use football as an example, and of course I'm not gonna name any names, but lots of these footballers now who are on, on pundits and Sky Sports, if I used to play with them, so if I could come and tell you things they used to say, but of course now when one gets caught, he gets ostracized like Peter Beardsley. And then as if Peter Beardsley was any different to anybody else. So um, that's the point I'm making that, you know, they, are they, they, don't now, they haven't necessarily changed their opinion on any situation. They're just now knowing that we can't say certain things, but we have to change the perception that people have of other groups of people, not just teach them how not to get caught by saying the right things. Mm. So that leads me on to, something that's really fashion, fascinating me, which is the state of the UK right now. So last time we met four years ago, we hadn't had a lockdown, a pandemic. We hadn't had the economic crash. We hadn't had the turnover in politics. We hadn't had so many things. And it feels like it's been a century since I saw you, not four years with what's going on in the world. John, what do you think the state of the UK is right now? Same like anywhere else in the world, we're struggling, aren't we? I mean, you look at the, as you say, the pandemic has really had a big impact on everyone. Um, other countries are now catching up because we're not allowed to, what we did in the old days, bully people into thinking how we think, bully people into doing what we want, saying what we say. Um, so, so the rest of the world's catching up, but it's okay, we're fine. Um, but if you look at what's going on, I think people are now, they're not, but they should be understanding that we're no different to anywhere else in the world. We all have our problems. What's come out today about the, the situation in the police? Had that been in another country, that that whole country would have been vilified. Can you just explain what that is so people well, know? Yeah. I mean, I think there are about 800 policemen who have now been investigating into, into rape and sexual abuse. It's a big thing in the police now, Now, of course. In the Met. In the Met, mm. Metropolitan Police. Now, had that been in Saudi Arabia, it would have been Saudi Arabia's problem because that's what they're like in Saudi Arabia. But of course here, we're not going to say that's what we're like in England. We will individualize negative aspects of our culture, if you like, individualize and say, these are the people who do it. But if it's another culture, it's the culture that's right. Wrong. So why can't we individualize the world? Because we are all individuals, aren't we? Absolutely, but we don't, do we? Because of course, you read about a Muslim terrorist. You don't read about a white or English terrorist. You read about a, a, a lone wolf. And why we don't? Because we want to condition people to think negatively about other people, but don't condition people to think negatively about us as a group of people. Condition people to think about individuals within this group rather than thinking, well, this is a problem in English society, which goes to show, even when you want to talk about not so much human rights, but workers' rights. And of course, in Qatar, we're talking about workers' rights. 
my brother knows a postman, he's on strike because of workers' rights. You have so many people on strike here because of workers' rights, and it's not just to do with money, but we don't think it's a problem here. But of course, it's a problem in Qatar because of the people who are building the stadiums. So once again, we've, we've, we've said it's a problem with the state of Qatar, but it's not a problem with the state of the UK, workers' mm-hmm. rights abuses. And that is what we have to understand, and it's all political. So, you know. Do you think this is driven by, spun by media? Absolutely, for hundreds of years, not just now, because of course what you don't want to do, and it's quite easy for us to criticize other nations or other states, but anything negative within, within our, our country is not state-driven, or the perception isn't about the state, it's about a lone wolf or, a, or, or an individual who's terrible, or 10,000 individuals who are terrible, a million individuals who are terrible, but are there five Muslim terrorists? It's the whole of the Muslim states that's, that's, that's guilty. Mm. Mm. So do you think we have true freedom of speech, John? We have true freedom of speech when, when it suits us. Um, <laughs> can we swear on this? Yeah, you can say what you like, John. Oh, can I? Yeah. So if we have freedom of speech, why can't we call someone a nigger? Freedom of speech. And now what has happened is that we've been trying to convince black people that we're going to be on their side because we are now going to say, you can't call somebody a nigger. You can treat them that way, but don't call it that. And I've always said, I'd much rather you treat me as equal and you can call me what you like, rather than not calling me a bad word and treating me in a different way. So when you talk about freedom of speech, secondly, I mean, as I said, it really depends on on, uh, what narrative you want to sell as to whether we have freedom of speech or not. And what are your thoughts on where it really is? What's your narrative? Words for me aren't important. Obviously, if it's going to influence somebody in a particular way, but once again, it's very nuanced anyway, because of course you've got a lot of black rappers using that word. And while it's acceptable, and now what we say as black people is that, well, we are now owning the word, so we are allowed to say it, but a white supporter of a black rapper who goes to his concert and plays money can't say that word when he wants to sing the song, which doesn't make sense to me. Mm. I've gone to that concert because I've paid 100 pounds to go to this concert, I've bought his records, but you're telling me I can't sing the song, particularly as, I'm not singing it in a way that is negative towards any black person, because that's just the way the song is. So, you know, the, the, the whole idea now for me is just getting too, too complex. Mm. Do you think the bigger problem is um, what you can and can't say and how it might be portrayed and spun and you might get attacked and cancelled? Or is the bigger problem that threat, therefore, you self-police and self-censor. Well, what you have to do is you have to be sensible about it if you understand the context um, in which it's used. Because if you want to sing an NWA song, that is not going down the street with a, a, a Ku Klux Klan out hot calling people niggas. Mm. Whereas if you want to sing what Dr. Dre's son in a way whereby you're having fun because, of course, that's what you do in concerts. So, once again, it's not as black and white as just to say this is something you can never say, this is something you can say, really is the context in which it's used. Just to give you an example, you had Greg Clark, this is chairman of the FA, and Greg Clark wanted to praise black people. He wanted to praise black people by saying how much they've brought to the game and how wonderful it's been since black players have come into football. But unfortunately, he said colored instead of black. So people wanted him sacked. They didn't listen to what he was actually saying about praising black people as much as he said the wrong word. Now, is it the wrong word? Because when I first came to England from Jamaica, I was black. I've never heard colored before, but everybody in England said I was colored because that was the word he had to use because black was an insult. Now it's turned. 
But if you're a particular age or brought up in a particular way that you're used to saying this, sometimes it slips out. Secondly, there are a race of colored people in South Africa. So I have this conversation with people all the time when you say it's unacceptable to say the word colored. What is Stephen Pienaar? Stephen Pienaar is colored. Benny McCarthy is colored. They would consider themselves colored. So if they're here playing and you say the colored player Benny McCarthy, you are 100% right, or Benny McCarthy would say he's colored. Now, what you might say is that, okay, in South Africa, you can call them colored, but in England, that's not what we say. But if I'm a South African colored playing here in England, you have to call me colored because I'm colored and I'm not black. I am colored. So once again, the most important thing is how is it being used? Forget about whether you say colored or, or black or white or whatever. What is the context in which it's used? And that has been forgotten about. Mm. So um, Matt Letizia has been on the show and he came on just after he got fired from Sky. And so I got a chance to talk to him for quite a long time about it and I've got to know Matt. Um, and he said that um, he got fired because he refused to wear the Black Lives Matters badge because he did some research into what he thought that was about and also that he was sort of being branded a conspiracy theorist. Mm. What do you think about that? Well, I've listened to Matt and I know Matt well and I like Matt. I think he's very bright and he's a, and he's a nice guy. I love Matt. Um, but there are two separate issues. The Black Lives Matter issue is separate to the, to the um, COVID issue. Now, I've got two doctors in the family. Both my kids are doctors, so I know it's real. I don't know what they're doing is the right thing to do. Um, Matt obviously thinks differently, um, but from a scientific point of view, I know that's the right thing to do. But Matt feels as in, about that. As in lockdown, vaccines, etc. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. That has to happen. Yeah. Um, from the Black Lives Matter, unfortunately, what has happened is that people has hijacked on both sides the Black Lives Matter movement. For me, Black Lives Matter means Black Lives Matter. It's not about defunding the police. It's not about Marxism. Also, Marxism is not as bad a thing as you would think. Uh, it's about Black Lives Mattering. Simple as that. Now, people on both sides could actually hijack it from a political point of view to then say, which I would not agree with, defunding the police, I would not agree with that. And people will interpret Black Lives Mattering as that's what they want, because they want to see it in that way to then hit back against it. Or it may mean tearing down statues, and that's not what I want. So therefore, you know, so it's not a binary situation where Black Lives Matter means either this or that. So it really depends on, on your interpretation of Black Lives Matter is. Mm. Now, I, what I believe is in authenticity of the support that's given. And I'm sure if you would ask the majority of white players as to whether they think you've taken a knee, they'll probably say no. But they have to be seen to be doing it. Or is it going to be called racist? So they'll do it. Mm. But they don't want to do it. The whole idea... Well, the risk to them of not doing it is great, isn't it? Absolutely. How but, much risk do you take? Well, um, uh, Wilfred Zaha didn't do it. But he's black, so that's okay. So is it a question, if you're black, you don't have to take any, but if you're white, you do? So the whole idea, unfortunately, we've got to the stage whereby you just have to be seen to be doing things. And that is not the solution to the problem. Right. The solution to the problem is believing what you're doing, not just doing it because, because you know what? But we're not taking a knee anymore, are we? So why are they all banned? The players who don't take a knee, England didn't take a knee. Why aren't they banned? Because before, if you didn't take a knee, you'd be criticized. Why aren't they being criticized now for not taking a knee? So the stupid thing about it is that whatever is fashionable at that particular time will do, and we can do the complete opposite. And it's like, well, you know, we've had enough of that. And that's why I'm talking about the support isn't real. Football can do nothing about changing politics, can do nothing about changing racism, sexism, and homophobia. And we overemphasize the importance of football in that. Why it does it keep possible. trying? I mean, look at the whole Qatar thing. Why it keeps trying is because the real people who can do something, absolve themselves of responsibility by doing it in football. So it's always on the front pages, and then we look and we say, things are being done. 
things are being done. But the real people, be the government, be the 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 the, the councils who really should be doing it in terms of the inner cities and what's needed, they don't have to do it because every day the media are saying things are being done because we're taking a knee. And Raheem Sterling is, you know, coming out and speaking about Eastern Europe and how, you know, these racists in Eastern Europe throwing bananas on the field, we're going to get them banned. And people go, yeah, let's get them banned. And the white working class footballer throws a banana on the field, let's put him in prison for 10 years. He can't spell his name, hasn't got a job. And he's the reason why black people are being stabbed and they can't get jobs. We're fooling people that mm. we really care. I'd like to come back to the Qatar thing in a minute. Um, do you think it was fair and right that Matt Letizia got fired from Sky? No, I don't. No, I don't. Because, of course, you have to be able to have conversations about this without fear of retribution um, and having nuanced conversations about it. Now, obviously, if you're going to have you know, headlines about Matt Letizia say that Black Lives Matter is not important, or Matt Letizia say that the, 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 um, the COVID um, virus is a hoax, which I don't think he didn't said. actually say he either, either of those, no. those things, no. of course, but that's the way it's going to be interpreted. Yeah. Yeah. Liam Neeson, similarly, yeah. you know, so of course, once you then take the sensational bits out of any conversation, and that is why um, it's uh, not a world I like to live in when it comes to the perception that people have of other people based on how little they know about the real situation. Mm. So let's go to Qatar then. First off, do you think Qatar should have hosted the World Cup? Um, should England hold the Commonwealth Games? Do you know how the Commonwealth, you know what happened in the Commonwealth? The genocide, murder, rape, exploitation of all Commonwealth countries done by the British for two, three hundred years. So if Britain can have the Commonwealth Games, Qatar can have the World Cup. And why was there such an outrage in this country about Qatar holding the World Cup? Well, there was an outrage um, when it was given the World Cup. No, all those years ago, those years no ago. one cared. And then all of a sudden, the week before, they have just been given the World Cup, <laughs> and it was a big shock. And what would it have uh, been, like, 10 years before it's decided, or more? Well, before that. Yeah. It was well before that. Um, and as soon as the World Cup final is finished, there's no more outrage, is there? I don't know. I wonder how those um, workers are in Qatar. I haven't seen much in the newspaper, or the LGBT community. So all of those supporters for the workers' rights in Qatar for the two weeks who shouted from the rooftops the day after the World Cup final, I haven't heard one word about that. I wonder if they're even interested. They're interested in their own profile. That's what they are. So um, then if you look at lots of the African teams in the World Cup, they also have LGBT issues from, a, from an anti-LGBT legal perspective. Should they be allowed to play there? Now the next World Cup is going to be in America. What's going on in Guantanamo Bay? You have the death penalty in America. Should America have the World Cup? But we're not going to talk about it, are we? Mm. Because unfortunately, if we do it, it's okay. But if other people do it, it's wrong. So that is why I say, Politics should be kept out of sport. A sport has no influence over politics. No influence. Because if Russia is banned from Europe to play in the European Cup or whatever, I don't think Putin's going to care about that. So we think that we can put pressure from a sporting perspective on them politically. We cannot. Mm. We cannot. And we have to stop thinking that we can. Because it's absolving the real, the people who can really do something of doing anything. Because it's all focused on, particularly football. Not other sports, particularly football. So, um, and secondly, all of these people who are having to go to Qatar, I'm not going to mention any names once again, but a lot of them, before Qatar, and straight after Qatar, would have been in Dubai, having a nice little holiday in Dubai, <laughs> who have the exact same laws. Mm. So why are they having to go at Qatar when they love Dubai, going there on holiday? 
Because mm, I am going to mention two people's names, not to throw them under the bus, because I'll, I'll try and be balanced like you are, John. But I couldn't understand why Harry Kane was getting so political with the LGBTQ plus and the armband. And then Gary Neville was really outspoken about it on um, as a commentator. And I just thought, why you're getting paid a lot of money to do your job. Why don't you just do your job? Well, they put on a pressure to do that, aren't they? Uh, so you think there's pulling strings from behind? Well, of course, because the thing about it is that if they were very much like taking the knee, if someone says you don't have to do it, they wouldn't do it. If someone says it would look good if you do it. And it's mainly the Western countries, Australia did it, America did it. But here's the interesting thing for me, the whole thing about Qatar is when, what's his name, American black footballer plays for Leeds, not, not Aronson, it's Tyler, Tyler Adams was asked a question by an Iranian uh, journalist about black people being killed in America. Everyone said, that's a disgrace. Why are you asking political questions? But all the Americans and the British are quite happy to talk about what goes on in Iran and what goes on there. And what he actually said was that, you know, he'd been brought up in America by a white family, he may have been adopted, and you know, things are getting better. You ask those black people in the United States of America, things are getting better. Qatar can legitimately say things are getting better because things are getting better. Things are getting better quicker in Qatar in terms of whatever issues they may have from an LGBTQ, from a, from a um, workers' rights perspective, they're getting better than things are getting better for black people in America and for black people in England. So unfortunately, once again, we do like to point the finger at others rather than looking at. So when people were disgusted that that question was being asked, had he been asked a question about Iran, people would have said, oh yeah, good, come out and talk about what you feel. Like Harry Kane talking about the, the political issues, of which they know very little about. They know nothing about it. Mm. So, and once again, a lot of them like going to Dubai. In fact, Liverpool went to Dubai. All of, a lot of Premier League teams went to Dubai. The FA Emirates Cup. Arsenal Stadium is called the Emirates Stadium. They've got the exact same laws as Qatar. The Saudis are now bought Newcastle. And maybe the Qataris are going to buy a club here. And these fans who want to talk about supporting the LGBTQ community, if any of them come and buy their club, they'll be delighted. Going to be able to spend money to get better players to win the match. Mm. So stick with football, stick with sports, and let the politicians deal with anything else. Mm. So you said at the start, we all have our own biases with race and culture and, and everything. And it sounds like our conversation here is maybe about looking inward at your own biases and trying to overcome your own biases. Is that part of the solution, do you think? That is the solution. That is the solution. And the only way we're going to overcome it is if we admit it. The journey of a thousand steps, the first step is the most important. Not the second, third, fourth, all the way up to a thousand, because you can never get there without the first step. And the first step, I do a lot of talks at banks, universities, I put my hand up and I say, I am an unconsciously biased person. Not in terms of race, but in terms of sexism, in terms of class, in terms of privilege. I'm from a middle class, politically, influential family in Jamaica, and I used to look down on black working class people because of the way I've been conditioned to think. Now, because I've accepted that, now at 59 years old, I'm not all of a sudden gonna say, oh, I've accepted it, I'm wrong. So therefore, I've completely changed. But as long as I accept it, I can work to change it. But if I don't even accept it, what chance have I got? As I'm driving down the road and a woman cuts me up, if it was a man, I wouldn't think, look at that man. Because he's a man, he's a terrible driver. If it's a woman, I know what I think. But because I accept it within myself, I say, well, I shouldn't think that way because I've been conditioned to think of women as being inferior, so therefore I can work on that. 
and it may never happen, but at least I'm aware of it. So when a ref female referee walks out, I my initial thought is also, it's a woman referee. But then I go, I shouldn't think that way. Why do I think that way? This is how I've been conditioned to think. But most people don't do that. They just go, I don't see, I'm not racist or biased or sexist in any way. And until we all admit it within ourselves to a certain degree, but why we can't do that is because if we do it and we have a conversation and we say anything, then we're gonna get canceled, we're gonna get sacked, as a lot of people have been. And we have to stop doing that. Mm. Let's talk a bit about football, John. Thank, yeah. And by the way, thanks for being so open about this discussion. No problem at all. Um, a footballer's currently overpaid. Nobody's overpaid. Nobody's overpaid. Not even billionaires. If somebody, well, in this in the society that we live in, that has been created for the last three hundred years, unless we're going to change the society and we become a, a, a socialist. Um, Oh, maybe, we, maybe we're getting nearer there at the we moment. Would, we would, and that probably would be better for the majority, 100%. Um, we have to work within the constraints of, of society as it is. So therefore, in this day and age, in the society we live in, if somebody's prepared to give you money as an individual, and I'm a footballer and I'm gonna give you 300 grand a week, then I'm gonna take 300 grand a week. Um, is it an argument about nurses? Mm. Yeah, are nurses underpaid? Now, I would say nurses are underpaid. You would. I would. Yeah. But I wouldn't say footballers are overpaid. But how because can you make assume, one argument, uh, not the other? Why people assume that if the footballer didn't get that 300 grand a week, it'll go to the nurses. But it wouldn't. No. You know, you're not paying a player 300 grand a week, most salaries left, so let's give it to the nurses. That's not going to happen. That's not going to happen. So, I believe that there is enough money around for nurses and, 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 and workers to, to get paid more. Uh, but that doesn't mean that, that you're paying footballers too much money. That is why those people are, are not being paid mm. that money. So, and one is public sector yeah. and one is private sector. However, however, what I would say is that salaries are too high from a club perspective. As in as a percentage of overall cost. Right. So that's why I think a salary cap would be the best thing. Salary cap would be the best thing for football. Because with a salary cap, you won't have a situation, it doesn't matter whether you're from Qatar, Saudi Arabia, New, uh, uh, Dubai, you buy a football club, you can't pay more money to your players than Southampton. Which means there's enough money in football for Southampton to give players, a few players 200 grand a week. But if Man United or Liverpool can pay all their players 200 grand a week, they're gonna go there. Whereas if they can't because of a salary cap, and people say to me, you are the first 10,000 pound a week player, so what would have happened to you? I still would've got 10,000 pounds a week. Because if you look at the American model where there is a salary cap, Tom Brady's learned a lot of money, but what you don't have are the average players earning £150,000 a week. And that's the problem with football clubs. It's not that they pay their superstars too much. So when I say Because that's what pushes everyone else's salaries well, up. Yeah. No, well, because, because they can. Mm. It doesn't have to, they can. But if the football club was not allowed to do it because there's a salary cap, you wouldn't get the average players earning £150,000 a week. And that's the problem. So when you ask me if footballers are paid too much, I would say yes. Average footballers, they pay too much. If you're the superstar, you earn, a, Ronaldo is worth his million pound a week, whatever it is, or, or Messi. But the average players who, and that's the problem, because it's not sustainable. The only way it's sustainable is if we have an oligarch from Russia or Saudi Arabia or whatever to buy our club, but there aren't that many, so it's gonna be unfair, and I still believe in a bit of fairness in football. And so why is there no salary cap? It's not a new conversation, is it? Because, the power brokers don't want it. Who are the power brokers? Well, not the teams in League One and League Two, <laughs> and the bottom of the not on the bottom of the of the of the of the, um, the, the Premier League. And here's interesting. This is an interesting thing because when the, the ESL was first muted and people spoke about it being, and then once again, you know, when you talk about the media, 
and you talk about the influence they have on people. And the whole narrative is that, do they reflect public opinion or do they influence public opinion? It's 100% the second one. They influence it completely, and they always have. So this whole idea from the ESL's point of view, it's an attack on football, it's gonna be unfair because the other teams won't be able to compete. And all the football fans were like, yeah, it's unfair. Whenever has a football fan wanted other teams to be able to compete with his team? Whenever, if you say to football fans, listen, you're gonna get more money than everyone else, so you'll be able to beat them. You think they're gonna go, that wouldn't be fair on the others. But the way it's been spun is that it's unfair. So, uh, from that point of view, now, I, I suppose why, they, why it wouldn't necessarily work here, although the ESL could work, and it may still wear its ugly head, if you think it's an ugly head once again. Why salary caps can't work in England, and it can in America, is because the American footballers, they're the best in the world, they haven't got an option. They either accept it, they can't go anywhere else. Whereas, of course, in England, you have a salary cap in England, and it's not in Spain or Italy. The players will go to Spain or Italy. Mm -hmm. So therefore, because every European country has its own laws, employment laws, now that we're not in Europe, we haven't got one anyway, the Premier League wouldn't be what it is. Mm -hmm. Because then they just leave the Premier League and go play in Italy or Spain. So I understand that. Um, but I, I do believe that a salary cap would be the best thing for football. Mm. Now, when you said... Um, footballers aren't overpaid because no one's overpaid. This is a fascinating discussion I'd love to have. Cause well, I then, then wanted to say that I think average players are overpaid. Yeah, so you, you <laughs> yeah. caveated it. Yeah. Average I just, players are overpaid. I just want to find out what you meant by that. Um, did, did you mean that how can someone be overpaid because they're getting paid it? Because Not because they're getting paid it, because somebody who has the money is prepared to pay them. Mm. So, therefore, so therefore, if I'm a milkman and someone's going to pay me £100,000 a week to be a milkman, and they, they, they have to, to, to rationalize it to themselves that they are paying it for a particular reason because you're worth it, then don't look at the individual and say he's overpaid. Yeah. <laughs> look at the, the system that allows them to do that and say, well, that's wrong, possibly. Yeah, so is there an argument, therefore, that if someone is paid a lot of money for something, that is perceived as valuable to someone else? For example, the sponsors, the club owners, why yeah. would you chuck millions at a player? Because that's a, a marketing entity that yeah. you could get a return on investment on. And that's what they think they can. Yeah. And maybe not turns out that way, but that's why you've got the contract in the first place. So therefore, you can then argue that if they don't get the return on investment, then he's overpaid. But when he signs that contract, he's not, because mm. they're not going to give you a contract if they don't think they're going to get a, an ROI on it. Mm. So, so therefore, players then, you could argue, has, have, have ended up being overpaid because they haven't been able to deliver what we wanted them to deliver. But when they sign that contract, the only reason they've signed that contract, the only reason you've given them that contract is because you feel that they are worth it. Mm. Is there an argument then that um, this whole, because everybody says when you talk about footballer salaries, they just compare it to nurses. It's just the standard thing. But the nurses are in the public sector. Mm. So, so you know, isn't it the government's responsibility to pay them more? Whereas footballers are in the private sector. Mm. So is there a public-private sector argument here? Absolutely. Absolutely. Because if I own a company and it's my money, I don't care how I got it. That's a different, sub that's a different subject. <laughs> then we can talk about that. But it's my money. doesn't matter how. And I want to do this. You can't tell me that I'm, I'm, I'm wrong to do that. So... So once again, similarly to, to football clubs and, and, and fans, and I love football fans, football fans, but they don't own the clubs. Ooh. They don't own the clubs. So therefore, you look what's happening at Everton and Manchester United. If I own this club and I pay three billion for this club, it's my club. It's my business. You can tell I like McDonald's and KFC. <laughs> and the amount of money I spent at McDonald's. I was going to say, you look great money, for 59. But the amount of money I spent at McDonald's and KFC, does that give me a right to then to tell them how to run their business and what they should be doing? Because I've spent a lot of money there. Football clubs are exactly the same. They're private organ entities who the owners can do whatever they want with it. 
Now, as a football fan, if you don't like what I'm doing, give me my three billion pounds, you can have it. But don't ask me to put three billion pounds in and ask me to spend 100 million pounds on players and pay them 200 grand a week, but you want to say as to how things are run. Mm. You can't do that because you'd never do that in any other industry. Now, I understand how emotive football is and people, football fans, feel they have an attachment to it, but this is what we have created. The old idea of a local businessman or somebody who was a fan supporting the club and then, you know, we support the club, so we're going to help you out. Once you then open the gates to then have, we want anybody to come and own our clubs, particularly as anybody who comes to own your club doesn't necessarily love your club. He doesn't know anything about your club. He sees it as a way of making money. But if you've allowed him to do that, because that's what the rules say, you then can't have it both ways. Mm. But why do people like the Glazers for Man United get much more resistance and hate from the fans than other club owners? Because they're not winning football matches. End of story. End of story. That's yeah, because it. it's quietened down a bit That's now, it. hasn't it? Because FSG is now getting a bit of stick. Yeah. For the last four years, weren't they getting praise? How great yeah. they were. They haven't changed. No. They haven't changed at all. So that's why football fans will just, you know, if you're winning, everything is great. If you're not winning, look at Everton. The amount of money Everton has spent. They've spent 500 million pounds. They pay their players well. They're at the bottom of the league, so people are blaming Mashiri. And now they're saying that he doesn't even come to the games. I'm giving 500 million, I'm paying the salaries of these players, so if I'm not at the game, so what? <laughs> you know what I mean? That way, I'll come to every game, but I won't spend any money. Is that better because I'm showing that I'm a fan? The thing about it is that managers would love it, would love it if they have somebody like that who say, you get on with it. I'll give you the money, do whatever you want, get on with it. Whereas they wanted to come to the game and go to the training and then, and then come and, and undermine the manager by being there and telling them. So, Unfortunately, in football, if you lose, there's always going to be an excuse. Mm. And unfortunately, depending on which club it is, because of course the managers are the ones who bear the brunt of it normally, but in the Everton and Man United situation, it is, it is going to be the owners. But I always say, and forget about what they're taking out of the club, because if they sign a player, the best players, for 80 million, 90 million, and they're paying him that money, whatever they're taking out, they have put this money into the club, and they've created this, and they've given you what you want in buying the players. So what's the problem? The problem is you're not winning matches, because as soon as you start winning matches, you're going to be praised. Mm. All of a sudden, Man United Stadium's not good enough. Come on. Come on. You know, talking about that, you know, the lounges aren't up to date and stuff like that. What's important is what happens on the field. And if you support the manager and support the team by putting anything on the field, we don't really care what the ground's like. Mm. John, I've interviewed a lot of very successful sports people. And um, I understand that many people who are very successful in a sport kind of struggle with retirement and the new career and what you do afterwards. So how did you deal with retirement? Was it hard? Were you a bit lost? Did you have a plan? Retirement, I never had a plan, but retirement was easy. (laughs) Easy, because when I was a 17-year-old footballer, I've always separated the two aspects of my life, who I am and what I am. What I am was John Barnes, 19, playing for England, scoring a goal in Brazil, professional footballer, PFA, professional footballer. That's what I am. That's never who I was. Who I am is John Barnes, husband, father, friend, normal person, ghost, and I've always been a normal person. So when I retired, I just went back to being a normal person. Yes, I worked on television, they did other things, but who I am has never changed. The problem a lot of people have, a lot of players, particularly with retirement, is that they buy into and they, they mix who they are with what they are. So they think who I am is a superstar footballer. That's not just what I am, that's who I am. Then when you're not a superstar footballer anymore and people don't want to know you, people don't want to sing your name, people aren't interested in you, all of a sudden you can't handle that because you thought that they love me. Now I'll tell you why I thought that way because I remember being a 17-year-old at Watford when I first signed for Watford and I saw 
some of the older 40-year-old players who used to play for Watford come back to the ground to get tickets and to mingle and to mix, and no one wanted to know them. And I'm sure 20 years earlier, they would have been the superstars who everybody loved. And I said to myself, when I, get, when I retire, that could be me. Now, fortunately, fortunately, it isn't because I can go to games and stuff, but I thought, because there's always somebody new who comes along. So therefore, retirement was, was simple for me, simple, because mm. I, I just went back to being who I was. Mm. And you didn't worry about not having a good career moving forward, you know, being Well, I didn't know what my career was going to be because, you know, at 17, I started Because you were earning good money, weren't you? So at 17, I'm playing football. Uh, And of course, when I retired, I can work television and do other things. So I won't earn the money I did. But I never necessarily was worried about me not earning enough money to survive. And also, I wasn't necessarily that... I wasn't looking for something. I'd say my son, I say it about my son all the time. He's a banker. He's got a first in that Leeds universities passes FCA exams and, he, and, and he's so, so bright, but he's looking for a job to fulfill him. And he doesn't like what he's doing because it doesn't fulfill him. And 99% of people don't do a job that fulfill them. They do it because they, they have to work. And because I'm not that interested in anything, if I can win television, if I can do media, if I can do something else, I'll do it. I'll do it because there isn't anything apart from being a footballer or a football manager, but unfortunately that hasn't happened enough. Uh, which is a different subject. Are you still open to that? I am, but unfortunately, it's not home to me, and it's not home to a lot of people who look like me, but that's, 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 that's life. But because there's nothing else, I'm not looking to be fulfilled. I'm looking to be able to eat and put food on the table and look after my kids. Mm. So I'm not disappointed, um, apart from the football aspect of things, in terms of what I've been doing, because at 35, when I retired, I went straight into television, and I did that because it was there. Mm. And once I didn't, and I still do bits and pieces, but if that didn't, and it hasn't worked out in terms of me being like a Gary Linick, I'm not that I wanted to do that, but that's not really what I wanted to do. It was like a means to an end. So I'm very comfortable. Mm. Is there enough education in football about the career transition afterwards, and especially financial education and managing your money? I think there is now, but I don't think there was um, back when I played. And as to whether, and when you talk about football, there, there, there are two aspects of football, isn't there? There's the Premier League and the top championships teams, and then there's League One, League Two, non-league football, and I don't think anything has changed down there. But I think in the Premier League and the, and the championship, things have changed. A, you're going to make enough money to be comfortable for the rest of your life anyway. As long as you don't squander it. As long as you don't squander it. But I don't think footballers squander their money now because, frankly, they're flipping boring, aren't they? Who goes to, goes to these casinos and goes and gets pissed and do stupid things with their money anymore? So they don't do that. <laughs> <laughs> if you look at why footballers lost money, including myself, the stupid things we used to do, whereas footballers don't do that now. They're much more, and, and they, and, and because not many footballers had agents when I was playing. You know, you think about that. So agents and financial advisors didn't really exist. You didn't have any of that. Yeah, I, I did because I'm John Barnes, one of the best players in England. 99% of footballers didn't. Whereas now you have agents from your 14, 15 years old. You know, so I think they're, they're better looked after now and better advised now than when I played. So I don't think they have that to worry about. What they have to worry about if you just play your whole life in League, in league 2 is that you're not going to be earning much money and you're going to retire when you're 31, 32. Mm. So um, is that a good thing or a bad thing, by the way, what's happening? They're better financially educated. They've got oh, no, better... It's very good. Yeah. And in terms of the way they live their lives as well. I mean, they don't go out and get drunk and mm. stuff like that. So they're much more professional than when I played. Yeah. So is their problem then more about social media? Because... Maybe you didn't have that when you were playing, and maybe that's an issue. I think their problem, their problem is what we have created as a society and as football fans. We have separated them from society to make them feel they are. When I played, and whatever superstar footballer you wanted to talk about, Maradona, they, they were normal people. They weren't Hollywood actors, whereas now that's the way they're treated. So they have become detached from reality. Now, not to say they have to ever go back into reality. So when most other finishes, you didn't have to walk down the street and go to Tesco's and go shopping. but. 
that's the thing about football that has really changed in that they aren't part of a community anymore. And that's what football always was. So if you look at anybody I played with, we still walk around the streets, we're part of a community, whereas that doesn't happen anymore. Whereas players now do not, do not get involved in anything to do with normal life. And as long as you don't have to, then that's fine. And I suppose that's where a lot of footballers who struggle from a mental health perspective does struggle because when they have to then go back into that and it isn't what they thought it was going to be because mm. they just have to become a taxi driver, be a normal person and you know when they play they thought they were superstars and now they're not. Whereas for the majority of Premier League players they will never have to go back into that anyway. Mm. So John, on the show we like to do some shorter rounds and quick fire rounds. Mm-hmm. Um, so we've got a quick fire round, maybe 30 second answer, something like that. And then we've got a what do you think of round. So, John, what's the best advice you ever remember receiving? Don't believe the hype. Graham Taylor said to me, you know, in the press, when I play for Watford, they love me. When I play for England, they criticize me. He said, do you believe them when they say how great you are for Watford? If you do, believe them when they say for England. So don't believe whatever they say. You please me, you please the fans, you do as well as you can. So don't believe the hype. What's the worst advice you ever remember receiving? I don't remember receiving bad advice because I don't, I tried, and I'm sure I must have shut out bad advice. Unfortunately, um, I received a lot of bad financial advice, which I should have shut off. But apart from mistakes financially, I don't think I've got, I've had any bad advice. And um, what's one of your worst financial mistakes that you could share so others don't make it? Well, investing in stupid stocks and shares, and people are always going to do that because that's the way we are. So it's not as if people aren't going to do that because some of it can be good because a lot of it has to do with luck. So uh, for me to say that and say people don't do that because of course you can make a lot of money doing that, invest in the right thing, but you don't know it's the right thing until you do it and see whether it works or not. Mm. And did you invest in bad investments based on someone advising you something or off your own choice and volition? Not on my own choice at all. I know nothing about stocks and shares on what to make investments is as most footballers don't mm. so any footballer has made a mistake unless he's an idiot really has listened to someone else mm. John what's the biggest failure you think has ever happened in your life well um, I believe everything that's happened in anybody's life is necessary to get them where they are today and if you are unhappy with where you are today you can go back and regret things and say I wish I didn't do that But if you're happy with where you are today, every negative thing in the past was necessary to get you here today. Because of course, without that, and we can go back and say we shouldn't have done that, we want perfection and life isn't perfection. So if you're happy today, don't regret anything in the past. Is there one thing though, if you could pick it out, would be like, yeah, that was bad? Well, if I was a better first husband, I wouldn't have my wife and three kids now. So if I wish that I was a better first husband, then I wouldn't have my wife and three kids. So how Mm. can I wish that? Mm. So there are lots of things that are bad, but as I said, it has led you to where you are. So we do a what do you think of round, which we find is actually quite a fun part of the show. Um, what do you think of Jurgen Klopp? Jurgen is fantastic. I think that managers have to reflect the culture of the, the city that he's in, and he reflects it perfectly. He's passionate. Um, he doesn't walk around in three-piece suits. I think that's if you want to go to London and Madrid and places like that. So he, he, he suits the, the Liverpool community perfectly. Mm. What do you think of Cristiano Ronaldo? Cristiano Ronaldo is a fantastic footballer. But Cristiano Ronaldo, if you ask me, Messi Ronaldo, Messi all day long, because Messi understands the value of the team, the importance of the team, the humility that you have and the reverence towards your teammates rather than thinking it's all about you. Cristiano Ronaldo as a footballer is one of the best in the world ever, alongside Messi, Pele, other people. Um, but as a, as, a, as, a, as a member of a team, I don't think he's been that great. 
And what do you think of his sort of return back to and legacy at the end of Man United? Well, he has been a fantastic player for Man United. And no matter what happened when you're 37 and coming back, that's never going to be tarnished because of what he did at Man United and Real Madrid. So no matter what you do, regardless of whether we think it's a mistake or not, what you've done in the past can never be taken away or never be underestimated or not, never been not appreciated by the fans. Mm. So someone everyone in the world seems to be talking about, even my school and all the kids, is Andrew Tate. Do you know who he is and do you have yeah, any thoughts on I don't that? know much about him. I see him. Of course, he's a narcissist. He's a misogynist. Um, I don't think he's as stupid as he's making out. Uh, I don't think he's as misogynistic or narcissistic as he's making out, but he knows that that's what's going to make him money. And it's unfortunate that you are able to be rewarded by being like that, because this is the world we actually live in. I think he's quite bright. And the thing about it is that very similar to Pierce Morgan. Some of the things he says are good. Um, most of, well, I can't say Moscow don't see that much of him. Some of the things he says are ridiculous. Uh, so um, I can't say that I'm a fan of his because I think he is destructive. If you're going to be an influencer, I think you can influence a lot of people negatively. Um, but as I said, I don't follow him enough to know the ins and outs of it. Is there an argument, though, in the world of social media today, you need to be both constructive and destructive to get any voice? It depends on the voice you want to have. Because I can have a much stronger voice by being disingenuous about the way I actually feel. Whereas if you want to be authentic in what you think, then fine, but I would not do that just to have a voice. Mm. So I don't know whether he's doing it to have a voice or it is what he really believes. And if it's, I'd have more respect for him if it was the first where he's doing it because that's what he believes rather than just to have a voice. But mm. I think at times he does it just to have the voice, which for me, I don't respect. Mm. And he's currently in a Romanian prison detained 30 days then extended for 30 days. He's had 6 million of his cars seized to fund the investigation. What do you think about that? I know nothing about that. So when it actually turns out that he's a rapist, he's a, a, a people trafficker, then he should go to prison. Um, but until, and I know nothing about that case. Um, so uh, it's, difficult to, it's difficult to say because regardless of whether you like him or not, we have to wait to see what the outcome of this is. Mm. Um, I'm not a fan of this at all. Uh, and what the reports of what he's done is horrific, but he may not have done that. Mm. So we have to wait to see. Mm. What do you think of Jordan Peterson? Well, once again, um, there is uh, a lot of people in America, um, I can't remember her name, black girl who's a Republican, who's very similar. Uh, Candace Owens. Candace Owens. Candace Owens. Owens. They say things which are quite relevant, um, and they say things which aren't. Well, they are relevant, but I don't agree with. So that is why I'm very nuanced with people, because, you know, he would say certain things, and I would agree with it, and I think that's very insightful, and that's good. Uh, and then they say all the things which I don't agree with. So, and not knowing them, I couldn't go by what I see, the snippets of, of them. So it's, mm. it's difficult. And I'd hate to judge people based on, because I know people have judged me, based on what they think they know about me and be the way things have been reported. Mm. Uh, so I know more about Candace Owens than, than Jordan Peterson, but people like that who are very binary in terms of what they feel, as much as very much like Pierce Morgan, he says some things which are very insightful, which I agree with 100%. Most of the time I don't, but you can't discount some of the things he says, mm. just like you can't discount some of the things Jordan Peterson says. I mean, is it not natural that we agree and disagree with anyone and everyone? Yes, it is, but not about everything. So we can agree on certain things, but unfortunately, once we decide we don't like someone, very much like the Meghan Markle situation. People say, well, I don't like her, no matter yeah. what. And she says some sensible things, and you know, yeah. I'm sure she's fine. And and some, but as soon as, but as soon as you, know, you either have to, to, to pick a side, and well, you have to do or you don't. 
Because if you don't, you will then get accused of being racist, sexist, homophobic, mm. misogynist, because you agreed with one thing that he said, So, which is unfortunate. Yeah. I mean, it sounds like whatever you choose, you're going to get criticised anyway, By aren't someone. You? By yeah. someone. That's why, from my perspective, I see a lot of black people saying, you're an apologist for racism. You've got white people saying, you say everything is racist. And it's like, well, which one is it? Mm. You know, that's why it's, it's, it's um, probably not the cleverest thing to be balanced and neutral. Mm. You have to pick a side, unfortunately. What do you think of Boris Johnson? Well, once again, um, Boris Johnson is symptomatic of the culture that we live in. Because no matter what you say, when you're posh, people believe that you're more intelligent than them. Donald Trump, when you're rich, people think you're more intelligent than them. You look at Obama, who's infinitely better than, more intelligent than, than Donald Trump. Or many, many politicians here than, than Boris. But because we have a perception based on the way we have been conditioned in the over the years. As long as you talk like that, hey, it doesn't matter what I say, people are going to respect you. So that is symptomatic of the problem we have here. Um, so I don't think Boris has much sense, but Boris survives because of who he is. And then to play on the whole Winston Churchillian, I'm like Winston Churchill, and if you knew the truth about Winston Churchill. But once again, Winston Churchill was fine, but it's just that because you can never judge somebody in terms of what they did in the past by today's standards. So I'm not judging Winston Churchill by today's standards, but if you want to really know the truth about Winston Churchill and judge him by today's standards, which is what we want to do a lot, he would not have been probably the nicest person. Um, but, you know, you do have Boris, who is going down that, that route of, you know, how great Britain is and, and, you know, we're English, so therefore we're the best. And a lot of people want to buy into that. What is the truth about Winston Churchill? Winston Churchill was, more in, was only interested in white middle class people. Simple as that. He wasn't interested in working class. He wasn't interested from a racial perspective in anybody else. And if he had to destroy them, be it India, be it Iraq, be it the working classes up north, he would do that. And he would convince himself for the good of the country. And a lot of people would say, yes, it's for the good of the country because the country can be powerful, but it still disenfranchised all the working class people. So, um, but at that particular time, everybody probably wanted to do that. Mm. That's why if you want to go back to slavery and whatever you want to go back in history, I would never ever denigrate um, anybody for doing what they did in the past because the majority of people wanted to do that. That's the way the world was. But if you want to glorify what's happened in the past to justify the way we are now without looking at the legacy of what actually happened in the past, uh, that is the issue. Mm. Not necessarily what went on in the past, it's the legacy of what went on in the past and us not just glorifying it, but also justifying it because we built some roads in Africa so therefore they're better off than when we came. Mm. Because if you know the history of the world, you will understand and as much as people are going to say it's a terrible thing to say, the Nazi ideology was based on what Europeans have been doing around the rest of the world for hundreds of years. The genocide, destruction, exploitation, the Nazi ideology was based on that for its own people. Now, the difference, that is not different. Why it is completely unaccepted is because it was done to white Europeans. If Adolf Hitler did what he did in Africa or anywhere else, the rest of Europe would have accepted that. But you can't do it to white Europeans. On the other side of what you said there, John, about taking the past and having a, you know, a proud legacy of the past, what's also happening a lot at the moment is things that people did for 20, 30, 40 years ago, whether it's a post on social media that's yeah. being draw, drawn out, or even something that's actually a crime now, yeah. But 40 years ago, it might have been different. Yeah. What's the yeah. deal with all that? Well, once again, it's crazy, isn't it, for what somebody put in 20 years ago and then all of a sudden it's coming back to haunt them. Um, I'm not a big fan of that. I don't, I don't, I don't agree with that. Uh, so 
20 years isn't 100 years ago, but it's, no, it's not different because, because we talk as if that happened 10 years ago. So what happened 200 years ago is not relevant. But what happened 200 years ago was still 199 years, 198. So it actually, it's not as if 200 years ago, everyone fell asleep and now here we are with 20 years ago and what happened in between didn't roll into it. You know, so whatever happened 20 years ago would have been happening to a different degree 200 years ago, which continued all the way up to then. And we're trying to like now, have a, so when is the cutoff point of when all of a sudden now things have changed? So, like now, taking the knee. Everyone's going to take the knee forever. So, no, no, we're not taking a knee all of a sudden. Um, it's a difficult question to answer. I really don't know how to answer it. Uh, but I'm not a fan of, of, of retrospectively looking back to, to criticize people or make people pay for things that were done, which were accepted by everybody. Mm. You know, Prince Harry or whatever, wearing a, 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 a William whoever wearing at a, a fancy dress party. And, so he's wearing a Nazi uniform, and he's going to be criticized for that. But you can go as Attila the Hun. And Attila the Hun was probably equally as bad, or somebody before. So it depends on how far you want to go back. Um, so it's a difficult question to answer, but I'm, I, I don't agree with retrospectively looking back to what actually happened all those years ago to judge them by today's standards. Because, mm -hmm. as you say, this was accepted back then. Mm -hmm. What do you think of Bill Gates? I don't know a lot about Bill Gates. I know he's, I can imagine he'd be very philanthropic. But you know, when you are a Western capitalist, no matter how philanthropic you, you are, you have, you, you have got where you've got to and you're admired because of what you actually do to make all that money. So once again, we can't have it both ways. We can't want to live in a society, a Western capitalist society, and then criticize somebody who has exploited that system for their own end. But this is what we have created. This is what we've accepted. So the balance is important. And I don't know enough about him to know whether he has actually put back I suppose he's quite philanthropic in terms of what he actually does. So, and you know, more importantly, and we always say this when we talk about from a religious perspective, we say, what would Jesus do? So what would we do if it was us? We had all this money, what would we do? And I think we do the exact same thing as Bill Gates. So we'll have to criticize people who've made it and have done what they've done as if we wouldn't do the same thing, but we probably would. So, you know, as long as once again, the balance is right in terms of this is how I see politics or capitalism in terms of who should be the leaders. The leaders are the ones who will exploit us less, not the ones who won't exploit us, because the Labour Party is going to exploit us, not as much as the Conservative Party, so maybe that's better. But it's not as if the Labour Party are getting in and we won't be exploited. So um, I always look at the people and say, who's going to exploit us less? And they're the right people. So I suppose Bill Gates has expo exploited us less than maybe the man from Amazon. I don't know what he's done. I don't know. but. Uh, once again, I don't know their situation, so it's hard. But to criticize him because he's a billionaire and however he's got his billions, we would probably do the same thing. Do you think that a situation where there was a party or a power or a leader that had zero exploitation intentions is a naive fantasy? Because if that was the case, then someone who would exploit would come in and exploit. Absolutely. Most politicians, you can look at when Af Africa and these Af Caribbean countries became independent. That's why a lot, and that is why a lot of these leaders and a lot of these philosophers, you can go back to Amy Césaire, a lot of these black philosophers, a lot of the French philosophers, there are a lot of them in the change had these the idealistic thought of equality. The Russian Revolution, you know, um, then all of a sudden you see what happened there. But they understand that, yes, this is what we want. We want equality, we want 
socialism or the people because normally in the countries that are are, are um, struggling where you have these revolutions and the ideal behind the revolution is this is what we're going to do for the people but unfortunately when you have the majority of people who lead these revolutions you may have the leader who is who is quite strong in his ideal behind equality and everyone being the same but a lot of his underlings are are middle class people who want more for themselves so the revolution in France was not about the workers, it's about middle class people who wanted more power from the king. The Haitian revolution was not about black slaves, it was about middle class Haitians, free Haitians, some black, some mulatto, some white, who wanted equality with France. Because after the French revolution, we wanted equality. We still wanted to have slaves and we would still export them, but we wanted that. Then that's turned into a revolution for the people. So most revolutions for the people is not about the people. Because unfortunately, the people who have got to that position want more, and that's going on now. So a lot of the people who are leading this fight for equality, be it race, be it gender, are people who want to join the party on the pretense that we're helping the people down below. And if you talk about trickle-down economics and that doesn't work and it's proved not to work, to then say, let's get economically better at the top and that will trickle down, trickle down racial equality, gender equality doesn't work either. So the idea, let's get a black man in power, let's get a woman in power, let's get him in power, that's going to help people down below, that doesn't work either. So because of man's greed, and that's how we've become. And I'm not necessarily going to say I'm any different, because of course we always want more, but I wouldn't lie about it. I would never say, give me a job as a manager because that's going to help black people in the inner cities. Because history has proved that that doesn't work. Mm. So if systems don't work because of man's greed, does that mean no system will ever work because of man's greed? No, the system will work. But it won't work to the benefit of the majority of man. Because the system's working now. The capitalist system is working. And we'll convince them that it's working, but it's only working for some people. So. I suppose a socialist system is probably the best system and it can work, but everybody has to be socialist. A socialist system can't work as long as it comes up against a capitalist system, because what will then happen is a capitalist system, particularly from a military point of view, as you can see, will be able to influence, and you have seen throughout the Cold War, that a lot of these countries in Africa who, who, who even lean towards socialism, they were then undermined by the CIA or by Europeans who went in there and, and, and looked for Nkrumah in Ghana, because, of course, there are always going to be people who are willing to do the bidding of their former colonial masters, mm. which is what's happened in Africa and the Caribbean and everywhere else. The problem I have with the socialist system, not the fact that it can often end up being a communist system, um, is just the lack of progression. Because surely for man individually and collectively to progress, we need merit-based individual reward. And if we don't have merit-based individual reward and we can just sit back and collect off someone else, there is no real progress. Well, that is why balance is important. That's why balance is important. And it depends what you mean by progress. Is progress just being able to eat to stay alive? So, of course, different countries are in different evolutionary stages mm. and different countries need certain things. So, therefore, you can, of course, going on in Congo, whereby they have the most cobalt in the world, 60%. So, why are there still people starving there? Now, a socialist system can work in some countries because progress or success means people not starving to death. Whereas in the Western world we live in, progress means you're able to buy a bigger house or buy a bigger car or whatever. So, but unfortunately now with globalization, we are now imparting our ideologies on everybody and everybody has to then fall into what we want. So, because from an idealistic point of view, and you know what? And I agree with you to a certain extent. I agree with you in that Wakanda doesn't exist from a black perspective. Because we believe if Wakanda comes, 
I don't know if you've seen Black Panther. Mm. Yeah? If Wakanda comes, all black people are going to be great. And they're going to you know, be flying around in invisible planes and stuff like that. That's not going to happen. Because if you, if you want an, ex- an example of why that's not going to happen, because if that was a case whereby white people rule the world, why are there so many poor white working class people who are starving and they're homeless? If it's, just a, if it's just a race situation. So once we get rid of discrimination, once we get rid of discrimination by whatever means. Can we ever do that? The vast majority of people, the vast majority of people are going to be exactly where they are. Exactly where they are. But they won't be there because they're black, because they're gay, because they're northern, because they're women. They'll be there because, as you rightly say, we all have that innate capacity within ourselves to be willing to work harder, to be more intelligent in terms of how we view intelligence in this day and age. Unfortunately, we look at the IQ system and the intelligence in terms of how educated we may be. You go into the Namibian desert with somebody who's never been to school and see who's more intelligent in staying alive. So depending on what you, how you class intelligence, but we know how we class intelligence now. So because we're willing to do that, we're willing to wake up early to go to work where some people are, so we deserve more. So I do believe in that. Mm. But that is why I think that the balance has to be right between those who have, those who have not. Now, if we're going to call upon people, because here's the thing, if we also believe in democracy, if we also believe in democracy, those, the majority of people are going to put us, the intelligent ones, the ones who are willing to wake up early, the ones who are brighter, they're going to put us into power. And the responsibility we have is to help them. But unfortunately, they're putting us into power and we're not helping them. So, yes, I agree with you in terms of there's always going to be inequality, but we can, as I said, it's just about being less unequal. Mm. So two more questions, John. Thanks a lot for this. Um, Hillsborough, what's your perception of what happened? Just open conversation. My perception of Hillsborough was, of course, Hillsborough was an accident, 100% accident. Could it be avoided? Of course. Because, of course, had the stadium been better, had the policing been better, had they not opened the gates. But, of course, any tragedy that has happened from a plane crash to any tragedy that has happened could have been avoided. My issue with Hillsborough is the lies that are being told after. And I suppose for a lot of the families, that is really what they were upset about. Of course they were upset because of Hillsborough. Of course they were. But the the covering up and the lies that were being told, and, of course, once again, you talk about discrimination, and it's so interesting because that is not a race issue. But a lot of people, when it was written in the sun, the lies that were told, how could they believe that? You know how they could believe? Because they're scousers. Because they're scousers. So of course we're going to believe scousers urinated on bodies and robbed the dead because they're scousers. Once again, that's how biased, unconsciously, people are because of the perception they have based on the way they've been conditioned. So for me, that was the big issue. Now, of course, you look at a, a situation whereby it's very much like if you go to war, people said, you know, that should never happen. And you should be prepared for that. You should, you, you should be prepared to go to war. So you shouldn't be a coward and run away because that's what you're trained to do. You're not trained to do that. No one's trained to go to war. No matter how many war games you play in North Wales, you're not trained to kill. You're not trained as an as a, as a, as a ambulance person to when this actually happens, how to deal with it. So I completely empathize with the ambulance services. But for me, it's the lies that were told after Hillsborough for me, which was the upsetting thing. And, and what were the major lies that were told? Well, about people urinating on bodies and stealing, and it was their own fault and stuff like that. Um, and a lot of the, you know, the, the and, and when so many people from Liverpool were trying to help the injured and the fact that they weren't rushing the gates and stuff like that. So, but you know, the whole idea about stealing from the dead bodies and urinating on people and stuff like that was dis- disgusting. Mm. So John, this show is called Disruptors. What does the word disruptive mean to you? <laughs> means many different things, means many different things. I suppose it's 
being alternative to the norm, uh, not towing the party line. Uh, it can mean many different things, once again, depending on the way it's used, because disrupt, being disruptive in a classroom is not a good thing, because you're going to get expelled, you're going mm -hmm. to get um, detention. But the, being disruptive in terms of not towing the party line, not supporting a narrative that you don't believe is correct, um, can be a good thing. Mm. So it means many different things. Were you a disruptor in football? I was never disrupting football. I was a, I was a, an advocate for everything. I tried to be an advocate that everything was good in football, not in terms from an individual perspective, because my football was always about, forget about how people may interpret me or the perception they have of me. My big, biggest thing about football was always the team, always the respect for the team, my subservience to the team, and my biggest, the way I, when people talk about, you know, what is your proudest moment in football? And you talk about when I won the, um, the, the player of the year. And what was more, what was I really, what I felt better about was the fact that we had seven of my teammates in the team of the year than I wanted because it could have gone to somebody else, but I felt part of the team. And when I was even captain in Liverpool and people said, even, you know, you must have been so proud. I was more proud to be captain than I was to be a part of the team, you know, because that's from a, egotistical, selfish point of view that I feel more important because I'm the captain. So football has always taught me, and my dad brought me up in that way about the team being the most important thing. So I was not a disruptor whatsoever. Well, John, um, you've given me many years of great memories as a Liverpool fan, and I'm one of your biggest fans. And also, thank you for doing the show. It's a pleasure. Thank you very much.